Welcome, everybody. If we could all uh, get ready and uh, take our seats. Um, welcome to the last public lecture for the Women's Studies and Religion program for this year. We have had a, a wonderful series of lectures, um, and I'm, I'm very happy that we're, we're going to be ending on a strong note. Um, I have a sign-up list here. If you are interested in being on our mailing list for next year, please add your name. So it's my pleasure today um, to introduce Damaris Parsitau. Um, my name is Catherine Breckis. I am uh, taking Ann Browdy's place this semester while she's on leave. Rumors are that she spends her time going to very interesting lectures and hiding in the corner where no one can see her. Um, uh, so it's been my pleasure to be working with this group of uh, uh, faculty fellows this year. Um, Professor Parsitau is a senior lecturer in the Department of Philosophy, History, and Religious Studies at Egerton University in Kenya where she also serves as the director of the Institute of Women, Gender, and Development Studies. Professor Parsitau is an expert on gender and religion who has published many articles about women in neo-Pentecostal and charismatic movements in Kenya. The founder of Kenya Women Rising, the Youth and Transformational Leadership Development Program, and Let Maasai Girls Learn, she is also a tireless advocate for women's education and women's rights in Kenya. Her project at the WSRP this year, The Kingdom of Holy Women, Pentecostalism, Sex, and Women's Bodies in an African Church, explores the intersection between Pentecostalism, women's bodies, and sexual purity. We are especially honored today to have Professor Parsitao's son here uh, from, from Kenya. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Um, <clears throat> first things, thank you Anne Browdy and Catherine and Tracy for all your support. Thank you my fellow RAs for challenging me and for being here this, uh, this afternoon. Um, my students who actually really helped me write uh, some parts of my book. Um, they really challenged me a great deal uh, last semester when I was teaching them on religion, gender, and sexuality in Africa. And lastly, my son for um, coming 22 hours in the air to be here today. Thank you. Uh, that's my last born child. <laughs> yeah, so um, let me begin by saying that uh, for the last 15 years, I have been researching on African and Kenyan Pentecostalism and its intersection with gender. But in the last six years now, I have been researching on the intersections uh, between Pentecostalism, women's bodies and sexuality in the Ministry of Repentance and Holiness, that one there, uh, which is founded by self-proclaimed uh, Prophet David Edward O'War, a very highly educated man um, uh, who is having huge impact on women, uh, um, women followers in his church. Uh, with this case study, I demonstrate using extensive ethnographic material how the teachings and beliefs and practices of his church 
not only aim to control and discipline women's bodies and sexuality, but portray them also as sites of tension and locus for sexual sin and death. More importantly, I show how his teachings not only map uh, themselves into women's bodies as sites of patriarchal surveillance and policing, but that uh, women's bodies also become sites where cosmic authority for highly specific commandments regarding how women dress and comport themselves are regulated and policed, as we will see in a short while. Consequently, women's bodies are policed, regulated, disciplined, and marked as sites of death and sin, and the reason why men will not get into the kingdom of heaven. And I know some of the things I'm going to say are quite disturbing, and I apologize in advance. Uh, consequently, I, I argue that such, such teachings, beliefs, practices, and teachings, as well as male authority over women's bodies, intimate lives, aim to, co to create a holy kingdom of women, pure girls, and moral regimes that put women's bodies at the center of an erotic economy where patriarchal ideals are used to objectify and control women's bodies. Welcome to my lecture. <coughs> So uh, on the screen is my uh, research outline. Um, so, but before I go to that, I would like to just give you a bit of background about Kenya, where my research is located. Kenya is in East Africa, and Kenya is roughly the size of Texas, has a population of about 50 million people, uh, we speak English and Swahili. English is our language of business, and Swahili is our national language. And we have a host of other languages, other ethnic dialects that we speak. Um, there has been a number of surveys. And, and you can see that, that. So you can see the map of Kenya. I just wanted to draw attention to um, the fact that uh, Nairobi is the capital uh, city of Kenya. And it's the only capital city in the world where there is a national park where giraffes and elephants roam around. So you're welcome. I'm a representative of the Kenyan government, so I'm selling my country <laughs> <laughs> this morning. Um, so there has been a number of uh, religious surveys that have been carried out on Kenya, and I just want to speak about them uh, very briefly. One of them is the Pew uh, Forum on Religion and Public uh, live survey, which was taken, undertaken in 2006. And uh, what it shows is that Kenya is a Christian majority uh, with a small minority of Muslims uh, at 11%. But uh, the most important thing that I want you to note there is that traditional African belief systems uh, is just a mere 1.6%, yet it informed the worldviews of nearly everybody uh, in the country which is interesting as a result of colonialism and, and um, you know, the spread of Christianity that has created uh, that kind of impact uh, on uh, African traditional worldviews. <clears throat> then um, there was a survey also that was uh, undertaken by the Kenyan government where in 2009, when uh, every 10 years uh, the Kenyan government carries out a survey on um, um, housing uh, census, general census to determine the population of the country. But this time in 2009, they carried out a question, uh, what is your religion? So, and they were able to collect uh, data about uh, religious affiliation in the country. 
and that information you can uh, see there. But may I say that these statistics have always been contested. There is always the uh, politics of uh, statistical contestations because everybody wants to uh, believe that uh, they constitute a higher majority. So the Muslims have actually uh, uh, refused to accept these statistics because uh, the Pew Forum uh, and Religion and Public Life Survey puts them at 11%, and this one puts them at 4.3%. And so there has been that uh, Pentecostals too have rejected these statistics because they think they are the majority in the country. The truth of the matter is uh, uh, Protestants and Catholic are the, the big majority. Then the Attorney General in 2006 and 2007 uh, came out uh, complaining in a meeting where he met religious leaders that uh, his, um, the registrar of societies was not able to cope with demands for registration of churches. He explained that 8,000 churches had been registered in 2007, 6,000 were pending registration, and that 100 uh, applications are filed every month. That tells you how uh, much demand there is. But something to note there is that uh, he said that even though all churches request for registration, the majority of the churches that were seeking registration were of Pentecostal and charismatic inclinations. And since we are talking about gender and sexuality, it's important to note that Kenya is 90% homophobia, according to the Pew Forum and uh, 2020. Then we get to uh, <clears throat> my research methodology. Um, so I'm an ethnographer, so ethnography is my main uh, research methodology and has informed my research for a very long time. Uh, but um, for this particular research, uh, I have been involved in uh, huge, two huge uh, uh, research uh, sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation through the Negol Institute on the social and political impact of Christianity in Africa. Uh, that was between 2016 and 17, and terminated about uh, the end of 2017. And I was researching among uh, scholars from South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Kenya uh, on the gendered impact of Pentecostal Christianity uh, uh, you know, in, in Kenya. That came to an end. Then 2018-2019, uh, I'm now involved with the African Theological Advance Project, again sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation. Um, and, and I'm advising groups in Ethiopia, Uganda, Tanzania, and Kenya, and all of them are researching on various aspects of Pentecostal Christianity. So my, my research sites are um, in, in Nairobi, the capital city of Kenya, and the Rift Valley. Nakuru specifically uh, is where I live, and this is the foundation of the Ministry of Repentance of, uh, and Holiness. Actually, I live next to the park. So when they have uh, huge... Um, uh, revival gatherings, which we call crusades in Kenya, um, um, my house is um, really affected by that. And Western Kenya, so, so much of the bulk of membership of the Ministry of Repentance and Holiness uh, are concentrated around uh, those three research sites. Um, so I research methodology, I utilized um, <clears throat> for, for, for for this particular book project, I utilized uh, ethnography, mainly participant observation. Of course, I participated in tens of crusades. You know, thankfully, it's next to my house most of the time, every month. I can't tell you the number of crusades that I have attended uh, since 
um, about 2010. Uh, I have also participated in pastors conferences and women and youth conferences and collected a huge cache of data um, for, uh, for this particular project. I uh, undertook over 70 interviews with members, non-members and ex-members. Right now there's uh, a lot of controversy concerning this church and there's a huge number of uh, breakaway uh, people who are you know, giving so much information about this ministry that it's, it's, it's shrouded with so much mystery and uh, so much uh, you know, that's not known by the outside world. So, uh, and these interviews took place in crusades. So when, whenever there is a huge religious gathering, women particularly uh, arrive at, at, at the center of the crusade for about a week and camp there waiting and praying and wailing and repenting and waiting for the prophet to come. That is the time when I actually really get to uh, carry out some of the interviews. But I've also done interviews in homes, offices, and coffee shops where I work. There's a huge number of academics, professors who are members of this ministry. Don't ask me why, but they're there. Uh, then I have lots of media material. Uh, the church publishes its own magazines. They have a radio station. So I have all these gory images of people who are healed and, and they are published in, uh, in, in, in newspapers. They have a radio station. Uh, everything that they, every sermon that is preached by Prophet O'War is uploaded on YouTube and you can check that. And uh, very disturbing messages, but they are all there. Um, and they, they have a very, very uh, well-constructed website where almost everything that you need is there. But he also offers live TV interviews, radio interviews, um, and, and Kenyan newspapers, like the last one month, has so much information about him. And I have a cache of uh, all, all, all that in, in my house and here. And of course, I use content analysis. I, 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 you know, I was able to think through this data using content analysis of the materials that I gathered. Uh, but throughout, I wanted to prioritize and give voice to the women that uh, I'm, 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 I'm writing on. I wanted to bring out their voices. So throughout my, my interviews, uh, I, I, you know, I made sure that uh, whatever uh, they, they, you know, I prioritized their voices. They told me so much about their lives, why they joined this ministry, how they got in, what they get from that ministry. And I, you know, followed these conversion stories, piecing together their lives and struggles and dilemmas. <clears throat> but of course, I'm guided by, you know, current debates about, uh, debates and challenges in the study of religion, gender, and sexuality. Uh, in particular, one book that has uh, been very important to me, uh, which was pointed by one of my colleagues, is Tradition in a Rootless World, and I'll explain that later. But throughout, I wanted to uh, also ensure that uh, how I'm interpreting my data is coming out uh, from these uh, women's uh, voices. Um, now, let's get to the mightiest, mightiest prophet. So that handsome guy, is um, Prophet David Od Edward O'War, um, an interesting uh, figure in the Kenyan social and political scene. He was born in Kenya of a very humble family of nine children. 
He's very smart, went to school and earned a PhD in molecular uh, genetics from Ben Gurion University in Israel. Israel is very important to him. Whatever he says, the prophecies, even how he wants to look like, how he wants to dress, how he speaks, uh, uh, he images himself as uh, actually a black Jew uh, from Kenya. And he wants to be perceived that way. So you can see him at the lab uh, uh, in <clears throat> Chicago. He worked in Chicago. He did his postgraduate uh, uh, training in Chicago. And then 2004, he abruptly left America and came to Kenya. And um, it's just recently that I learned uh, that he's a fugitive from the law that he actually uh, sexually assaulted a woman in the lab, dragged her, and then uh, he seems to have run away to Kenya. And so you can see that image when he comes to Kenya. And you see the transformation from the lab to uh, uh, that image. I'm not getting that, yeah. Oh, this one. Uh, and the beards. So the beards, he has cultivated a mystique about himself. Uh, you know, how he dresses, how he carries himself. And this beard is supposed to be um, where his power is. And when uh, journalists and, and, and researchers have asked him about it, he doesn't talk about it and, and says that um, God resides there. I don't know how God resides in the beard, but that's the answer he has given to people. Uh, so there he is. And I want you to see the transformation of this uh, uh, gentleman. Sorry. Um, Uh, so here, uh, this image is when he came to Kenya and he's preaching to a very small crowd of very few people. And that was 2004 when he burst into the public sphere and maybe just a bit of history. So he burst into the public sphere in 2004, running as a fugitive from the law in America. Uh, and then comes and starts giving prophecies about uh, sexual sin in Kenya. Kenya is rampant with sexual sin and God is very angry and is going to destroy uh, the city of Nairobi, starting with the red district uh, at Koinange Street. And Nairobi is going to be split uh, into two because God is angry with so much sexual sin that is going on in Kenya. And, um, and people just ignored him as another charlatan you know, in the industry. We have so many of that uh, in, in African Pentecostalism. I have come across so many of that. But then uh, the post-election violence in 2007, 2008 happens, and he had prophesied that. Uh, to me as an academic and as an observer of this Kenyan socio-political scene and alongside with many other people, had, we had already foreseen that the post-election violence was going to happen because we had seen the signs. So many things were uh, going wrong in the country, ethnic emotions and all that. But for many people, this was a sign that he is a prophet sent by God. And he used that to launch himself into the public sphere, began to you know, hold humongous rallies and uh, you know, carried out peace building initiatives. And the government saw that, drafted him into peace building, and he basically launched himself into the public sphere and people began to listen to him. Uh, immediately after he became popular, um, the whole idea of uh, reconciliation and peace building 
disappeared, and he became a very strong critic of the prosperity gospel, denounced clergy from all denominations in Kenya. He has no regard for any clergy, whether that is Pentecostal or, or mainline or, or Muslim or any religion. He is the one and the best prophet and the last prophet of God. Uh, so he denounced clergy as frauds, cheats, liars, greedy, corrupt, and sexually immoral. Notice that sex is always very... Uh, it's always very close to his mind, and, and we'll see that later. So he denounced churches as locals for sexual sin and immorality, condemned women slutty dressing, these are his words, condemned, uh, condemned homosexuality and lesbianism. He doesn't talk about the other binaries, only homosexuality and lesbianism. Prophesied that God's wrath was coming to Kenya because Kenya is full of rampant sin, but nothing happened. No earthquake uh, happened. But last week there was an earthquake, and he promptly uh, said um, that he had prophesied about that. So quickly, then he establishes um, uh, the Ministry of Repentance and Holiness. Now, uh, just just something a, a caveat there. When he came in, he hated the idea of churches because churches were polluted by sexual sin, and within a very short time, he had become so popular that he created altars in the place for churches because for him um, altars are holy spaces unlike Christian churches that are polluted uh, by sexual sin uh, so he created this unique ministry um, and which has a very unique leadership structure that I'll show you briefly he started ordaining women I want you to hold that in mind as bishops and heads of altars cultivated a mystic about his, himself. So who is in charge of the Ministry of Repentance and Holiness? There is no doubt who is in charge. He's the prophet, the founder of MRH, and, and the prophetic arm of the ministry. Then he got uh, an archbishop, who is my colleague uh, at the university, uh, someone with a PhD, a, a full professor of uh, agriculture, agricultural economics, as the archbishop, and, and, and created an outfit called King's Outreach Ministries, to you know, organize all the altars in the country. Then he has a you know a huge number of bishops, archbishops, deputy uh, bishops, heads of altars, youth pastors, but only him can preach, only him can uh, perform miracles, and only him can prophesy. Nobody else can do that. And he in his uh, 1,600 altars in the whole country. On Sunday, there is no preaching. They watch his YouTube or listen to him on Jesus' Lord Radio. So he's, he's a very authoritative figure. So that's the, the iconography of, uh, uh, of his uh, uh, ministry and the office bearers. I want you to notice that um, here at the regional overseer, up, there is no woman, but women uh, begin to become bishops and pastors and head of altars. Uh, which is which in itself is uh, interesting dynamics because in other Pentecostal churches they don't ordain women so this one comes in and ordains women and it's a it's a big attractive uh, attracting factor for women, so King's Outreach Ministries is the uh, you know the umbrella body there are 1,600 altars spread across the country and beyond so they say that they have altars in America and I I saw something about that on YouTube I'm not sure I'm not able to determine that. Uh, I know they have followers in Latin America, and he, he travels there uh, a, a lot. So, so he, he images and frames his ministry as a ministry that's beyond uh, Kenya, and it's international, but he's really strong base. 90% of his followers are in Kenya. 
So the tenets and principles of this ministry are centered around uh, the key words of repentance and ministry as reflected in the name of the ministry. He applies his message both to religious and sociopolitical scene. Anything that happens in Kenya, if there's an accident, he prophesies. And, and he, the prophecies happen when it, the, the, the incident has already happened. Uh, healing and miracles is a big thing in this church. And, and, and it's a big attractive, uh, attracting factor to, uh, to the ministry. Uh, he sells ministry, uh, he sells um, uh, healing and prophecy. So here he alleges to uh, heal people of HIV and AIDS. And, and in one of the magazines, there are so many people who you know, are paraded and their pictures are taken and they, you know, they are issued with certificates of a clean bill of health because they have been healed of HIV AIDS. In fact, he uses the word HIV is deleted from their cells and their blood. And medical practitioners, some of them are members of his church, come to legitimize and support that. And many people have found that very disturbing. So here, uh, deaf ears pop open, the blind eyes see, cancers are deleted, while tumors dissolve, crooked limbs are straightened. And, and all manner of claims. And you can see in that uh, poster announcing one of uh, his healing crusades, which can run up to 10,000 people. When he comes to a city, to my city especially, it comes to a standstill. <clears throat> then he claims to resurrect people, and it's normally women who are so sick and they're the people who are healed and resurrected. So there was this story of Marosa who was said to be resurrected by uh, a text message. Uh, Mama Rosa, uh, suffers from um, epilepsy, so she had one of her thing, and then he promptly sends a message to the husband and says it's well, and then she resurrects, and then the whole country gets into his, you know, celebration in the parts that where he has followers, they are celebrating the resurrection of Mama Rosa, who died a few months ago. Uh, uh, so those are women who are, you know, cutting trees not nice, and celebrating uh, the resurrection of Mama Rosa. So here are women, again, uh, receiving healing. So it's a big thing, plus prophecies. And he has prophesied about everything that happens in the world. Tsunamis, floods, earthquakes, air accidents, and all of them are linked to the concept of sin and sexual immorality. The reason there are tsunamis is because uh, wherever the tsunami happened, people are in sexual sin. So you, you, so you see, he, then he evolves into this huge guy who criticized a very severe critique of um, the prosperity gospel, becomes extremely wealthy and lives a very opulent life. When he lands in a city, it's, it's like the president of Kenya has arrived with massive security details. I counted a security um, you know, headcount of his security guys who surround him when he's preaching about 24 of them, and they are armed. Roads are washed before his arrival for crusades. He's a larger-than-life figure, but he's loved and loved in equal measure. He fears death and is very paranoid about being poisoned, yet he resurrects people. So that's, that's him. Uh, th this, this is his house, which is putting up at the cost of $4 million uh, US dollars, and it's his poor uh, followers who are building this house. You can see his, uh, how he travels, but I wanted you to see the women there, and it's, it's, it's women mostly who clean the roads for him. Then they carry those brooms, brooms home to go sweep their homes because then um, it brings blessings into their homes. There he is, escorted by the Kenya police, uh, 
and you, you, you can see the escort, the entourage, which stops traffic and, and, and inconveniences people a great deal. Uh, there he is with armed police. Um, so just um, two, two, three weeks ago, no, it was, it was over uh, Christmas holidays when I went home for Christmas, uh, uh, Kenyans made a lot of noise and uh, the uh, commissioner of police withdrew his security details and now he has no security. So he started traveling with a helicopter but you can see, and I want you to notice the power. Uh, here is our president, Uhuru Kenyatta, and the opposition chief, uh, Honorable Raila Odinga. So he speaks and shakes hands with these guys. And when his security details was withdrawn, he told his members that uh, President Uhuru Kenyatta had sent for him this helicopter to carry him to Nairobi, which turned out to be a lie. And <clears throat> so, so he has made really interesting uh, claims, uh, he has been transfigured and doubled, uh, like Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he says he's Moses and Elijah, and his, his members call him the two mightiest prophets of the Lord, um, and the two ferocious witnesses of Revelation um, 11. One is shorter than the other, and, and can be in two places, different places at once. God calls him my Lord, and Jesus comes to see him and lies on his feet. He has claimed that he will be assassinated in Jerusalem and his body will lie for three days before God resurrects him. So you can see images of his transfiguration. Of course, these are uh, photoshopped uh, images, uh, but his followers will not have any, uh, you know, when you tell his followers these this are photoshopped images, they don't believe that. So now that we have a background of uh, prophet of war, I want to get into the real... Uh, the real thing, uh, which is uh, the kingdom of holy women. Uh, so the altars basically um, are really women's spaces. Uh, so you can see the altars there. Uh, they, are, they are highly decorated. And, and women spend a lot of time in the altars. It's as if they are running away from uh, their homes uh, to be in the altars. And they carry incredible responsibilities to altars, cleaning and decorating and making sure that everyone else is comfortable. But uh, altars are also spaces for fellowship, uh, prayers, repentance, healing, spaces for emotional release. Um, there's incredible wailing in this church and women wail on the streets calling the radio and repenting for all manner of sins in the country. So there's a perpetual state of of, of wailing, and uh, one, one member told me that it helps them to uh, feel better about themselves when they cry and wail. So there's, there's, there's an element in which they go there to seek both physical uh, and emotional healing. Uh, at the oldest women uh, find community uh, with each other, a shared sisterhood bound uh, by a common faith. But there's also welfare for women. Uh, the, 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 the vulnerable members of society, the, the single moms uh, and, and, and divorced women and uh, widows uh, f have welfare in this church and it's a big attracting factor. But um, that welfare is pegged on women remaining holy. I remember speaking to one woman who told me she was a young woman of 29. She had just lost her husband and she was forced to move away from the house she was staying to a compound where there are members of the church who can continue to police her life so that she doesn't fall into sexual sin. And if she does that, then uh, welfare is terminated for her. 
uh, <clears throat> and then, so, so, you know, in my research, women told me that uh, they feel unjudged. Uh, Kenya is, Kenya, the Kenyan society frowns on being single, and, and yet there's a huge number, uh, the statistics are damning, that one out of every uh, six women in Kenya is a single mom. And, 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 and this can be explained uh, in, in so many other ways, but there's, there's that sort of stigma that is attached to being single. But here, women who are single are not stigmatized. In fact, they are impressed, although there's uh, the other element where they have to stay holy to, uh, but they are not judged and they are you know, uh, ordained into, um, into the priesthood and gain leadership uh, uh, training there and be able to do uh, their thing. Uh, <clears throat> so, Altars are important sites of holiness and gender geographies, and you can see that how women dress there, they go there, and you know, be to, you know in community together, and you know, geography and the space and and the bodies and everything collide together as women, uh, uh, you know, live out their lives in in these spaces. They have carved space for themselves and with God in the altars. It's 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 a space for holy women of the sacred altars, as I call it. Now, uh, <clears throat> I, so, so there are women in the altars. Um, they, they, then I, I just want to speak very briefly about something that is uh, connected to women of the altars, and that's the fact that women uh, in this ministry have evolved a dress code uh, dictated by the prophet. And because it's linked to the whole concept of holiness, women have to dress in a certain way so that, one, they do not tempt men not to get into heaven because men are described to be visual beings when they see half-naked women, uh, they, they, they see it automatically. So that places a heavy burden on women you know, to dress. So in this church, the prophet has so much uh, to say on how women dress, how they comport themselves, they don't wear short skirts or dresses or any piece of material that uh, exposes their body in any way. Um, before this, it was sack clothes. When women went to the altars, they wore sack clothes and, you know, smeared themselves with ashes as a sign of repentance for the sins of sexual immorality in the country. Then that evolved into that. So uh, this dress code was dictated by the prophet who sees visions about how God wants the women to dress, and then he comes and tells them. And the, the other day I discovered uh, in, in my research that most of the bishops own tailoring shops where they do these dresses uh, for the women. So there, there's, there's the economic uh, bit of women bodies there to uh, men are not expected to dress differently except that they have to be in suits, whether it's raining or it is hot uh, in the African sun, they have to be in suits and tie. Uh, and the, the, the coats have to be long so that um, they hide uh, uh, certain parts of their bodies. Uh, yeah. So, um, so this, this, this sack clothes then evolve into uh, this dressing uh, and it's dictated by, by what he says and it's all linked to uh, the concept of um, you know, sexual sin. And the prophet dictates, dictates uh, this and they are taught that the, uh, their bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and they must take care of their bodies. And uh, I, I came across, uh, you know, the other day, a, a YouTube message where he was telling women not to moisturize their body, 
even with Vaseline, because when they do that, their bodies shine and look good and they expose their legs and then they tempt the pastors who commit sexual sin because of them. So this places a heavy burden on women to be responsible for, uh, uh, for, for, you know, for men, uh, but not the consequences of uh, whatever happens to them. So throughout my research, as I was analyzing my data, a number of interesting came, uh, things came to me. One of the things that women are looking for is that uh, they are looking for a sense of community and well-being, and, and health featured very highly. So the themes that came out are women and well-being, anxieties around health and disease, particularly HIV and AIDS. Uh, you know, uh, there has been... Uh, well, statistics have really gone down in Kenya, but for a very long time, the statistics were quite high. And this is one of the reasons that uh, women are here seeking for healing, and you know, he promises to heal HIV and AIDS. But also many women told me that the addressing puts them in a situation where they, they feel like they have control and they are not vulnerable to violence because there's lots of gender-based violence, and they feel that this kind of dressing protects them but also that the church preachings uh, protect them from witchcraft and barrenness. Barrenness is a stigma to barrenness, and, and women really face tremendous rejection because of this. But here, they are welcomed, and, and they feel like they are in, in good and safe hands, uh, especially widows and vulnerable groups. But they also go there for worship, and um, you can see there women worshiping. That's, that's a... a it's, it's a female choir, and the prophet wants to see women worshipping. In fact, they lead the worship uh, in, in his church, and look at how they are dressed. And they sing holy. Here, women don't swing their bodies. You stand still and just worship. There is no swinging of any part of the body because it denotes sexual sin. And so you can see women are stretching their hands for healing. There he is with little children, and uh, they are holy girls. Um, those are the people who are very close to him. Now, I want to speak very briefly about women agency between power and uh, empowerment and vulnerability. So I, I alluded to this and I told you to hold that in mind. So women uh, are ordained to ministry, which is something that uh, other churches, other Pentecostal churches don't do. And you can see images of women prostrating on the floor. Uh, he's ordaining them. They don't go to any theological education. No pastor of his has gone to any, has any theological education, including himself. He frowns upon theological education and claims the Holy Spirit is their best teacher. So, uh, but uh, throughout my research, I came across, uh, you know, also from non-members that women who are ordained are women with social standing who can be able to support the ministry. Uh, those who are very poor, very few of them are ordained to ministry. This, this woman, uh, I know her personally, she's in charge of um, uh, um, Angola, a church in Angola where he has uh, a lot of followers. There she is. Um, notice, I want you to notice how, how Dr. Owor is dressed, uh, his long flowing coat. So men are supposed also to do that so that um, they are uh, not uh, leading anyone to sin. So I came across a number of bishops who have been ordained. Uh, and, and, and I have an example of Gladys, Bishop Gladys, uh, who 
works uh, not very far from my university and she doubles up as a businesswoman. She's currently commanding an entire county which is uh, made up of five districts and has 80 altars under her. So she, she's in charge of organizing and all that. But it, it's important that you notice that um, there is, they don't have spiritual power per se. They don't preach, they don't heal, they don't pray for uh, anybody, they don't prophesy. They are just there to facilitate the prophet's work. But for most women, to them, that is power that they are called bishop uh, with very little tangible power to show for. But one of the things that struck me uh, is that uh, many women felt that this church has been able to uh, pick them up from where they were, from the situations of brokenness and, and given them um, uh, you know, a life, a new life uh, like that uh, testimony by uh, Gladys. I would like to ask Barbara to read that for me. Can you read that? Yeah. So that, that testimony was very powerful to me. You know, he picked me from the dustbin to this comfortable space. And I came across many women who had narratives like that, that, uh, you know, while my feminist eyes uh, sometimes look at this ministry really strangely, women are telling me real tangible things that they feel they have gained self-esteem, you know, being somebody in the society, you know, being comforted, uh, you know, after suffering tremendous uh, sexual and physical and gender-based violence and abuse, you know, so th these are the things that, um, you know, my data, you know, you know kept uh, pointing to. Uh, briefly, I will talk again about weddings are not a sexy affair. So I have this student of mine who's a very smart girl, and she was one of my best students. And um, she came to my office one day dressed, uh, you know, in, in in the kind of clothing that I showed you. And uh, she was getting married. And uh, I asked, uh, she, so she came to tell me that she was getting married. Uh, to this gentleman who was arranged uh, for her to get married to by the church. And, you know, so we got into this conversation. I asked her why she didn't want to marry for love. She said, um, I don't need to marry for love if my pastor thinks that uh, my my husband-to-be is a good man, then that's all that matters to me. So we got into conversation about her dress, then she told me uh, weddings are not a sexy affair. Uh, that's what they have been taught in church, that even on your wedding day, you have to be covered um, completely. No part of your body uh, should be exposed. 
uh, because that's sexual sin, even on your wedding day. Uh, and so, and, and how women are supposed to get married has lots of connections to do with, um, with the kingdom of heaven. And, and weddings must be conducted in a way that uh, uh, will lead uh, people to believe in the kingdom of heaven and you know, you know, that, that sort of thing. So how the weddings are conducted is interesting. So here is the, 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 the bridegroom that arrives first and waits there because she represents uh, um, the church. And then the groom comes in later, who represents Jesus Christ, and 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 and, and weddings are supposed to be uh, to to kind of imitate how the rapture will take place. And rapture is a big big thing in this church. They are always talking about Jesus coming anytime, and 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 the church has to be prepared. But notice that women's uh, bodies are linked again to the whole idea of the kingdom uh, of of God. But to me, it's all about uh, toxic masculinities. It's, it's about uh, men controlling women's bodies and their sexuality. Uh, this prophet has everything to do with how women comport themselves, who they marry, how they marry, how they are going to get intimate, and, and, and sin is always lacking, uh, sexual sin is always lacking uh, before them. Uh, but it's, it's also, it also points to a very complicated relationship uh, between churches and gender and sex in the context of power. And it's a question of who owns power, uh, whether that's spiritual power or economic power or political power. Uh, we are witnessing a situation where men of God are extremely powerful to uh, the level where they have so much control over how uh, people live their intimate uh, life. But there is also a crisis of masculinity. I just spoke about uh, the high number of single uh, moms in the country uh, because men are shirking their responsibilities. Um, but women told me that they like dressing um, the way they dress because they feel uh, protected uh, from gender-based violence uh, in the country. Um, in conclusion, I want to say that the Ministry of Repentance and Holiness theologies place heavy responsibilities on women. MRH offers contested and conflicting notions of gender, sexuality, intimacy, and purity. Women are responsible for the sexual response of men who are easily aroused at the sight of women's flesh. Men are therefore not responsible for this aggression as they were simply provoked by scantily dressed women. But this conversation is larger than a marriage. It's a conversation that has been going on in Kenya for a very long time and, um, and masks you know, the brutal realities of scant socioeconomic uh, options that many women have, but they are cast in a moralistic discourse. Thank you so much. So I know that some of you might need to go to classes at 2 o'clock, but we will stay here till 2.30 for anybody who would like to have a conversation. So the floor is open for questions. I will bring you the mic since we're um, recording this.
Thank you so much for this presentation. This is absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think it um, has a lot of resonances also here in America. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this project continues to develop and um, getting the book um, when it's done. So um, I thought your point about the sites of tension was a really interesting intervention. And I was wondering, um, thinking of sites as not only sort of <coughs> geographical spaces, but also um, as media spaces in particular, what what, um, what is it about the sort of three actually ethnographic sites that you mark in your research that have become such fertile ground for this ministry to operate? So Nairobi, Western Kenya, and, the, and in your neighborhood. Um, like what about those particular areas um, is especially sort of um, makes the ministry especially provocative for um, either women or men or just participants in those areas, um, and specifically how he might, um, the prophet may see himself sort of creating other sites um, in Latin America. You mentioned that they might be some sites in um, here in the US, um, but thinking about actually the sort of geographical, um, geographical considerations that are taking place as he's sort of setting up these ministries, setting up these altars throughout Kenya and beyond. And then also how that sort of translates into some of the media or the, the ways in which he's accessing media um, and taking advantage of media. Uh, you talk a lot about um, YouTube, television, radio news, um, and just wanting to know like how, like how strategic um, is a sort of um, it seems pretty strategic, but how is he even talking about sort of new media and old media um, versus websites and um, social networking, um, and then also just sort of traditional ways of, of getting in the newspaper or getting on the local news? So, thank you. Thank you. So, should I answer that first? Yeah, uh, thank you so much. That's, that's a really, really good question. <clears throat> So Nairobi, uh, Kisumu, and Western Kenya. Um, so when he first launched his ministry, Nakuru was the home base. And, he, and, and um, Nakuru, which is in the Rift Valley, was the hot, um, the epicenter of the post-election violence. So many families were affected. Uh, there was a lot of uh, mass displace dis displacement of uh, people, and he created, you know, reconciled, you know, uh, warring tribes. And um, so he actually really settled into this base where people felt like if there is peace in Nakuru and the Rift Valley, he contributed a big deal to that. So th that that for Nakuru and and Kisumu too in Western Kenya uh, was the hotbed because Kisumu is the hotbed of the Kenyan opposition uh, 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 family and the Luo people who occupy uh, uh, Kisumu area and west, the larger western uh, region was in the opposition and again they have suffered tremendous marginalization from the Kenyan government but also they were the people who are also so much affected by the post-election violence. So that might explain Nairobi too and actually when, when, you, when I was mapping uh, the centers where he's very popular I could actually tell that these are the centers that suffered tremendously during the post-election violence. And, and, and you could tell the ethnic uh, composition of uh, the area where he has massive following. So that, that is linked, to, of course, to the politics of the country. So it's interesting to me that this is one uh, 
person among many Pentecostal churches that really, really aggressively uses the media to launch himself into the public sphere and to be known and to, and, and, you, know, to you know, to put his message across to uh, people not just in Kenya because he knows the importance of media, uh, whether that is social media today or, or the traditional media. <clears throat> Uh, as I said, uh, over, over, over the holidays uh, in December, so much started coming out about him that had never been known. W one of the things that he did using the media is that he really controlled the information that went out about him. What was known about him is what he told people. But now that we have a huge chunk of uh, people who have broken away from his ministry, not really breaking away, leaving, especially when he started making claims of him being doubled and transfigured, many people were really so frustrated and they got out. And they started, um, uh, what do you call it? They started a Facebook page with so many followers calling, uh, they, they call themselves uh, a group that exposes the hearses and and the lies of Prophet David O'War. So much came to the public just two weeks ago, and that's something I forgot to talk when I was presenting, maybe I was nervous, um, <clears throat> that his ministry to the widows has also the element of exploiting widows. Uh, one of the things that he did when he came to Kenya, he quickly became friends with a very wealthy widow who lives in Nairobi and who has been bankrolling the activities of his ministry. So what came out two weeks ago is that this wealthy widow by the name of Jael uh, was a very high-ranking uh, lawyer in the country who had amassed lots of wealth to herself. And um, he immediately she joined the ministry. She was ordained as a bishop. And then she left her practice and joined the church. And then what now came out is that she was completely isolated from the family for 15 years. But they took over all the wealth of this widow. Uh, who is, she's really wealthy. And all the money was, um, and, and the properties were uh, you know, registered in the name of the ministry. Until the family came out is when people realized, oh, this is what has been happening. But the most unfortunate thing for me is that she had been dragged for so long that she signed away all her properties uh, when she was not in a proper state of mind. So that created tremendous public discourse and suddenly the media became an enemy. So now his followers have been told not to, to, to get into Facebook or social media sites. Um, he's refusing, he's, he's calling the media the enemy, the newspapers, the, uh, um, the TV houses and all that. So there's this interesting dynamic of relationship. When he is okay, the media is his best friend. When the media uh, reveals uh, the activities of his ministry that are not very good, then they are enemies and they are blackmailing. So last week there was an earthquake in Kenya. It was not a serious one, but he quickly... Uh, claimed that it's because he's being blackmailed by the Kenyan media. That's why we have that. So it's it's a it's, an, it's a contested relationship. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> 
So first, I just wanted to say thank you, because this is so fascinating. And it's really wonderful to hear your thoughts on it and to hear how they've changed over the course of the year. So my question is about, um, about the issue of agency, uh, women's agency, and the really um, complicated way that this ministry empowers them and subordinates them at the same time. And so I guess I just would love to hear you talk more about that, and particularly about, you know, I was thinking about the quote that I read, probably because I read it out loud. I was thinking about it. And I mean, there's, there's something great about that. Here's a person who needed help, and here's a ministry that helped her. On a surface level, that seems good, right? To use moral language. Right. <laughs> and yet it's imbricated in this huge network of consequences and like the other woman you mentioned who has to live in the compound and that kind right. of thing. I mean, mm -hmm. how, what do you think about whether, there's, whether this ministry is really doing something good for its female members? Or do you think it's... How do you think that works for them? I mean, they are getting a material benefit. That material benefit empowers them with confidence, but it also gives them, like, they're being surveilled, they're being controlled. I mean, how do you think that works out? I mean, is it ultimately more negative than positive? And if this church is to fail, I mean, we've talked a lot over the course in the, um, of the year among the fellows, like, this guy seems to be sort of... Um, exploding on social media and like he's gonna there will be a crisis point in his career and then what will happen to that church afterwards I mean will anything be there to take the place of like those kind of social safety networks so yeah I guess just how much good is it doing is it doing any good um, how do you negotiate that and what you think about it yeah, yeah. thank you <laughs> I knew you'd ask me that question it's so complicated to answer you um, it's a very complicated relationship and uh, I spoke to so many women who swore by the prophet that their lives have been tremendously transformed. That's the word, they like using that word, tremendously transformed uh, since they became members of that church. Many of them told me they are leaders, that they have voice, they can speak, um, and that they have titles. And there's, there's a lot of craze about titles there. And, and, and so um, from the material that I gathered, there are women who feel very empowered uh, uh, by the church. I, I don't think so. And, and, and I feel sad to say this as, 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 a, as an activist and as, as a feminist. I, I feel like some of the things that the church does to women is, is completely outrageous. And I can't even imagine that there are women who go to that church, let alone professors who are members of that church. That, that's something that I'm not able to wrap my mind around. But then there's also the element of, uh, you know, what people gain spiritually, you know. And, and I spoke about well-being, that they feel that their spiritual well-being is being taken uh, uh, into consideration. But something that I, I don't know whether I, I spoke about this, but one woman told me that uh, the reason that she joined that ministry is that she felt it was a different spiritual experience from all the other churches she had been to. And she gave me a list of the churches that she had been a member of. And, you know, so she, she's this person who is like a nomad. She keeps running away from one church to another. But she had been in this church for nearly 15 years, and she said, I just wanted a new spiritual experience, and I found that here. So there are those things that are you know, you can, you know, explain, uh, but there are those things that only, only, only these women followers feel about, and, you know, I, I cannot invalidate their, 
their feelings about the church. I can only accept that, you know, grudgingly as a feminist. Uh, but it seems there is, there, there is empowerment, but disempowerment in so many levels, particularly, you know, I, I feel as, as someone who works uh, with women who struggle with body issues and gender-based violence, I feel like, you know, like, it's just so wrong on so many levels. But I have also seen women objectify others, joining the prophet to objectify women who don't dress like themselves, you know. They have actually objectified me. I remembered one time, as the director of the Gender Institute, um, we, we had uh, students who had been violated in campus. And I was, you know, besides myself, I was so angry. And I went to the security people, I went to the vice chancellor, and I said, I need to have a seminar about this. We need to train uh, both students and staff about uh, this thing. It's, it's horrible. And I remembered one woman who was in the training who told me that I was not a good role model uh, to, to girls because I dress, because I wear trousers, because I, I wear short skirts. And, and she's a member of that church. And so I have seen these, you know, women objectifying others, you know, joining the prophets to continue to objectify other women. So, so there is empowerment, there is disempowerment in so many levels. And the consequences of this ministry are yet to be felt. You, you can tell, you know, I can tell myself as someone who's lived in Kenya for so long and someone who's been following on the activities of this church for a very long time, that it's coming to an end soon. Uh, and the government is, is closing in on him, especially because of this particular high-ranking case, but also because bishops are perpetually being forced to force people to give money to build his house, uh, to, to drive his, you know, to fuel his cars, to give him this opulent life. People are getting tired. So uh, the consequences of that will come out later, but for now, I don't think, and, and maybe I would refer you to my article, uh, Women Without Limits and Limited Women, where I was just talking about this empowerment and disempowerment that takes place in Pentecostal churches. Maybe we can find answers there. I don't know, but um, I don't think there's empowerment. Uh, thank you, Demeris. This is quite rich and um, uh, lovely. Uh, it's obviously going to not only uh, to the literature on Pentecostalism in Africa, but I think it's going to be very unique. Uh, this is a highly, highly unique uh, church. I'd like to go back to the last comment. Uh, <coughs> what I'll probably call the amazing grace testimony of Gladys. Uh, and I call that the amazing grace testimony of Gladys precisely because of the importance of that. Not only in Pentecostal churches, but in all churches. The fact that they felt they were lost, now they have been redeemed, and they are now themselves. I think this is what we are seeing in some of these testimonies. And so you have to be able to find a way of dealing with that. It may mean shelving a little bit the feminist cap, and maybe you assume the womanist, the womanist cap, because quite a number of your colleagues who are working on this uh, will say, we are not feminists, we are womanists. So that will be very, very important. You raised a very important issue too, and that is the relationship between the state and these churches. Right. 
few months ago, or maybe almost a year ago, uh, Kigami of Rwanda closed down 8,000 churches. Yeah. And the responses to that is mixed. Uh, some hailed him as, you know, being uh, thoughtful in closing down Pentecostal churches that have been seen to be fraudulent. There are some who said, no, you dare not do that. These are spiritual churches, and the state should not intervene at all. So that becomes a, 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 an issue. Generally, uh, when we look at the lives of these kinds of churches, and there are you know, thousands of them all over Africa, we kind of just wait for the, uh, for the Weberian uh, moment. When they die, and then there'll be crisis, and based on internal, internal uh, dissensions, then the church will split and it will take its normal self. Now, my question is this. To what extent was this man also influenced by his stay in Israel, the Begorian thing? I like the fact that he, you pointed to the symbol of these beards. Uh, you kind of dismiss that, but it's not. Uh, it's, uh, 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 that was the future of independent African churches for a long time. The idea that not only did they have these beards, but they quoted extensively from the Old Testament, and they identify with you know with the prophets. I always try to say uh, you know in relation to the transfiguration thing that you know if if there was a Nigerian there that day, he would have asked God to also create one ten for for them, not just for the other you know prophets because they're pretty smart at you know at uh, at responding to such things. So. The Old Testament symbols are so powerful, yeah. and which is, to some extent, part of the independent African church uh, model, and part of it maybe his own excursion in Israel. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think I would like to, you know, uh, uh, some other time sit down with you to continue the conversation. But thank you very much. This is really rich. Thank you. Um, so that is so much influence of... Uh, um, MRH ministry from Judaism. He spent a great, uh, a long time doing his uh, PhD and um, lived there and actually married a Jewish woman and has a baby, uh, a child with him. And when he moved to America, he left the wife and, uh, and, and, and his son <clears throat> and came to America and married another woman. So he has a history of, you know, women, and he had also another woman in Kenya whom he had a family with and left, and so he has a very complicated relationship with women, but Israel and, 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 and Judaism is so close to his heart and everything he does. In fact, what I didn't mention is that he only eats kosher food from Israel, and everywhere he goes, especially when he goes to Latin America. And they, they bring this on television and everywhere that they served him kosher food. And the, the cooks who are cooking from him were Jews. So, you know, he's a black Jew, he said that. So there, there is a lot of influence from Judaism. You can see that in his beard. You can see that in his preaching, in his prophecies. He's even called himself, you know, all those um, uh, things that the Old Testament prophets uh, were and beyond. Um, but there is also influence from everywhere else. 
uh, I have listened to a YouTube uh, where he says that uh, Muslim women dress better than uh, Christians. Uh, and 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 uh, they are better religious people that than Christian, and and that has you know led to questions whether there is also uh, a bit of that. Although he he doesn't like other religions at all at all. He doesn't like uh, Islam. He doesn't like Catholics. He doesn't like anybody. So um, so there's 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 a lot of influence. I could I could give a whole lecture on his influence. His you know how Israel has has been very uh, you know. Has, has really impacted his theology, his teachings, his, his very life. And, and now that the Kenyan media is after him, he issued a prophecy a day ago to say that Israel has, uh, uh, has reserved a very big house for him and big cars and servants and everything. And he is going there where he will die. He will be killed and uh, his body will be lying there. So there's a lot of influence from everywhere. Um, <clears throat> One of the things that I found uh, um, with uh, many of his followers is that uh, they actually believe that his prophet Elijah and Moses and John the Baptist rolled into one. So now he's three witnesses, and I said one is shorter than the other one. I have always found that very comical. Uh, but there is so much influence and, and, and women particularly really believe that he's a black Jew. And, and actually some told me that they think he's Jesus himself. So there's all, all this thing. Um, the story of uh, Amazing Grace. Uh, Grace is somebody known very well to me. Uh, I, I know her, I know her story. So I wasn't surprised when, when, when she told me this. But I also came across more nuanced stories than, than these that I had no time to, to talk about. So it, it's had a lot of impact uh, uh, on, on, on women and agency, but also Israel is really coming into, um, you know, when, when President Trump uh, moved, what was that he moved? The embassy to Jerusalem, he led massive celebration in the country because of that. So, yeah, there is that. I don't know whether I've answered you and we can have more conversation about this. Yeah, but that's, that's the situation. Um, so, like everyone else said, thank you. This is such fascinating work, and I'm glad we got to hear part of it. Um, so, my question is, why do you think uh, sex is such a central aspect of his ministry, considering that he has his own uh, sordid sexual past with multiple partners and multiple children, and leaving them this and that um, seems like sort of an odd choice? And then the second part of that question is, why do you think it resonates with his audience so well? Um, are there patterns in the social scripts in Kenya that sort of mesh seamlessly with this message? Is it seen as revolutionary? Um, and, or, or sort of where does it play in the social and political landscape? Thank you. Um, <laughs> that's a question I don't know how to answer. But he has a very complicated relationship with women. That's, that's number one. And um, 
just the other day what, what emerged, which I didn't know all this time, because he describes himself as, as, as a holy person. Actually, when he goes to meet uh, female bishops, they keep what they call holy distance, so that no part of his body uh, comes you know, close into contact with women in case he sins or he has bad thoughts about, uh, about women. I don't know why he just can't have a conversation with women without thinking about the whole idea of sex. But I think he has a very complicated relationship with sex and it's emerged that he's a sexual pest who uh, raped uh, a woman in the labs in Chicago and is a fugitive from the law. I don't know from a psychological point of view, because I'm not a psychologist, how that has uh, you know, uh, created uh, who he is, but um, he, he seems to really have that issue. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and it's, it's a big deal, and it's actually the gist of his ministry. Every Sex is always in his mind and in his mouth when he speaks. Everything is connected to sex. Tsunamis are connected to sex. He hates homosexuals, and they are the reason there is so much problems in Africa. You know, you know such kinds of uh, things. Um, but the Kenyan society, uh, in the last couple of years, has been going through. Uh, 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 he has been undergoing a lot of. Uh, social change. First of all, the feminist movement in Kenya is very strong and has had a big impact. Uh, today, uh, girls go to school probably more than the boys. I have the statistics because I do that as an activist, but now they have disappeared. But uh, so girls and boys dress like any other kids anywhere in the world. Women want to look fashionable. Another Pentecostal church is I found this very interesting. Other Pentecostal churches encourage women to look after themselves, to build self-esteem, to comport themselves better, to, you know, to look good for their husbands and their spouses. And, and so this was really interesting that someone else comes and wants you know, to wash that away. And, and I think there is a threat coming from that. And, and the, the threat is very real because the, the term feminism in Kenya has such negative connotations that people like me who uh, openly call themselves feminists, most of my colleagues would never say they are feminists because there is a backlash to that. So I think there is a threat of, 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 of that and, and, and the, you can see the social tensions already, the fact that marriages are really falling, girls are refusing to get married until uh, nearly the age of 30, which was different from my generation when we were getting married at the age of 22. You know, Barbara keeps laughing about that, but that was the reality I grew up in. And so th there are all these tensions and they are creating tensions in society and people are not happy, men are not happy, religious clergy are not happy. And you know, of course, Africa is a patriarchal uh, society. Virginity was a requirement for most girls before you get married. And, and so, so you see the African uh, cosmologies and worldviews coming into you know, his teachings and his preachings, then you, he's, he seems to be so much afraid of modernity. I don't know why for someone so educated uh, like that. So there are all these tensions that I'm not able to put into word and I'm, I'm not yet done with analyzing all of my data and, and it's something that I'll be taking into consideration as I think about that. I don't know whether I answered that question correctly. Thank you. <clears throat>
Um, thank you, Professor Patsatel. This was a really eye-opening and fascinating lecture, like everybody has said. I'd heard a little bit about, uh, read a bit about Prophet David Owar, and uh, I didn't realize just how deep the rabbit hole went. So thank you for taking us on this, <laughs> this journey. Uh, I had one question, which I think you began to answer in response to Kira, which was that you, you said you've interviewed many ex-members uh, of his, I don't know if you should call it a church or just his ministry, and I wonder what their narrative about who he is, what his rise to power is in his position uh, spiritually and politically in Kenya is, and how that might differ from um, the broad general narrative that's coming from himself um, and, and might be more dominant in the public sphere now. Um, I also had a question related to how he may have influenced other religious movements in Kenya. Um, Professor Lupano's work now, he's talking a lot about how the explosion of Pentecostal churches has affected the way that all of the other Christian denominations, um, the way they carry out their liturgy, the way their structure is, the way worship uh, carries on. And so I'm curious if he has also had an effect on other religious communities, whether they're Christian or especially Pentecostals or, or otherwise. Um, and finally, I, I know you may not be able to answer this question, but it's something we see in Nigeria all the time that has always uh, confused me a bit to a certain extent. From the outside perspective, it's very easy to dismiss this type of, of movement as you know, for the masses, for people who don't uh, have a high level of education, it might even appear just superstitious and so on. But you always find a large number of people who are very highly educated, who are social, political, um, sometimes even religious and academic elites, who are very uh, honestly and sincerely devoted to it. So you've mentioned some colleagues you have at the university. Uh, do you have any idea exactly why it is that they tend to appeal so strongly um, to many members of the academy in particular? Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> So um, I, I don't have an answer why academics are followers of this church. <laughs> and I know I am biased. Forgive me for that. Um, yeah, and um, I, I spoke to a number of professors and asked them why um, you know, they follow this prophet. They actually don't see anything wrong with this prophet. And, 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 and you know, that was amazing to me that uh, people who can really think so critically, don't see anything wrong with him. In fact, I think one of the things that gave him a big edge in the Kenyan social and political scene is that he was anti-prosperity gospel when he came in. And the anti-prosperity, the, the, the prosperity gospel had become such a huge burden to many Kenyans. So when he came and you know preached this fresh message and was castigating prosperity clergy, so many people actually began following him on that. Only that, he reproduced the worst elements of prosperity gospel later on. Now he's one of the most, in fact, he's the wealthiest clergy, Pentecostal clergy in Kenya right now. Uh, so, so I think that was a big uh, attracting factor. But again, also the whole idea of people wanting to have a new spiritual experience. It's like people are um, experimenting which, which, which church is better, what appeals to me. But there are many things that draw people to churches. There is healing, you know, whether that, that takes place or not. Uh, there is that. There is the acceptance. There is, uh, the, 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 there is authority. Um, um, I, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with the works of um, uh, 
Babad Tunde, what is his other name? Uh, we, we have written an article together. Um, uh, Professor Lupona knows him very well. Uh, Ebenezer Obadiri, yeah, who has just written, uh, published a book with uh, Adrian Van Klenken on um, um, Pentecostals and sexual citizenship in Africa, where I have an article on, on, on this uh, prophet of war. And he's, he's you know, thinking about the expanded roles of clergy. They are, they are gaining tremendous social influence, political influence, and this particular clergy is very influential politically. I remember during the 2013 uh, general elections in Kenya, he was able to hold a very huge rally in which he brought all the eight presidential candidates uh, together, prayed for them, anointed them with oil, and told them to make sure that there is peace in the country. And you know, people admired that. People felt like he has uh, political power. He brushes shoulders with the high and the mighty. So the, these are some of the things that uh, attract people uh, to this. Um, we'll continue to have a conversation about that. His influence on other, church, on other churches has been very bad. It has been very negative, and in fact, the reason he says he has 101 security details is because Pentecostal clergy want to kill him because he has taken away uh, uh, members from his church. So there is accusation of sheep stealing. The truth of the matter is when he came in in 2004, and by uh, 20s, 207, 208, when Kenya was in a very vulnerable uh, state because of post-election violence, he gained massive followers. And, and, and so many people left their churches to follow him. Uh, later on, when he started talking about uh, transfiguration, the same people went back to their old, old churches. But the truth of the matter is, is that he's such a feared character because he keeps telling people he will cast them, and he gives example of people he has cast, like he had a, fall, a fallout with uh, one of the archbishops, and the archbishop promptly has a stroke, and he goes on radio and tells them that he cast him. You know, so he operates on fear, so people are so afraid that he will, be, uh, that he will cast them because he has so much power, you know, whether that power is real or not, but in the eyes of many people, that power is real. And, and so there are all these uh, issues and dynamics that, uh, uh, you know, make him, you know, create himself as this big person, but he has trained ecumenical relations in Kenya a great deal because he, he hates every other religion. Remember, he's the best and the last prophet. All the other ones are false. So, but Kenyan uh, clergy have never gone on TV even to criticize him. They are so scared of him. So, so all these dynamics again, and again we can continue to have conversation about this Deji uh, uh, later on, but I, I, I feel like uh, he has been a very divisive figure, at least in the ecumenical um, uh, scene in the country. Thank you so much for this fascinating conversation.